Welcome to The Corner, La Source's digital show dedicated to the sport and entertainment industry. Every two weeks, we invite a professional to share their experience, background, and challenges. The sport industry moves fast, and having their insights is the best way to keep up to speed. Welcome to The Corner. Hello, everybody. Happy to have you here uh, for a new uh, podcast on our Le Corner International. We are very happy today to to have Danny with us, Danny Ribeiro from the Portuguese Football Federation. Uh, hi, Danny. How are you doing? Good morning. Good morning. Great. I'm doing fantastic. Thank you very much, Jean-Baptiste, for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, cool. Thanks. Thanks for, for replying positively, actually. Uh, at the request and you said you, you said to me like it was your your first podcast so are you are you feeling nervous or happy and i know you so i'm sure you're you're never nervous but happy to have you for your first podcast actually it's a first experience no doubt <laughs> that's for sure uh we, we usually tend to have some kind of a, a small introduction uh f- from the invitee from the speaker so could, could you please give us a bit of a personal and professional background information from, from your site? Sure. Back in uh, 1998 is when I started my career. I um, am of Portuguese descent, so my parents are both Portuguese, but I grew up in the United States. And um, I got an internship, started working for the New York, New Jersey Metro Stars that today is known as Red Bull New York. Um, after starting the censorship, it was a bit the launch pad for my uh, professional career, where I started as an operations coordinator, uh, basically handling match day activities. And from there, just grew into uh, more and more responsibilities every year and um, made my way to a company called Champions World, which was at the time quite innovative in the sense that It was the first company that brought European teams to the United States to um, uh, to do the summer uh, tours, preseason tours. And from there, I was able to um, sort of uh, network myself uh, into having uh, more contacts in Europe. Got an invitation as I spoke fluent Portuguese to move to Portugal for the Euro 2004 uh, championships, worked two years on that project. And then from there, uh, I was exposed to uh, to UEFA and uh, was um, given a job proposal to move to Neon in 2006, where I worked in the events department and uh, stayed there for about 10 years. And about five years ago, decided to move back to Portugal. Um, to lead up our nationals team uh, division, and I've been here now for five years in uh, in sunny Portugal. So that is, in summary, a little bit my um, uh, my roadmap to to where I am today. And um, and looking back on it, I think every single step was that it was a step. Um, I didn't uh, skip any. Uh, any chapters along the way to um, to grow my career. So by doing that, I've accumulated a lot of baggage and a lot of experiences that today I use 
since uh, since the first day I started working as an intern to uh, to what I'm doing today. Cool, cool, Danny. That that's really cool because actually I didn't mention it right at the start of the podcast, but. Uh, you have a profile which is a bit different from what from the invitees we usually have around the startup world or innovation or around the, the digital side of things. But for, for this episode, we wanted also to to showcase a bit your journey, but also the operation side of things for which it's truly important for sports organizations. So um, I really appreciate that you can also navigate us uh, through it because I've always been impressed by your legendary calm and relaxed attitude while there's plenty of things happening even mess around so i hope that's something our, our listeners will be uh, <laughs> could be able to hear as well um something you did not really tell uh when, when you presented yourself but i think you started off in data or that the, the the way you've been working right at the start uh maybe as an intern or as a junior uh in the us uh, or organizing the tool was very much um, uh, related to to data, and and that was early in the nineties, late nineties, or even early two thousand. So can can you can you tell us a bit more around that? Or absolutely, I think when when you work on the operation side um, of actually implementing uh, clear tasks and seeing how those tasks are implemented and what the results are, most of my decision-making processes has to rely on data and not so much perception. Um, uh, the data I usually work with is, um, is some of it is, is related to finances and to, and to numbers, so, or, so budgets, and also uh, data of how um, sort of service levels are implemented, what are guests' experiences, surveys, etc. So you have to really, um, when making decisions, make it based on objective measures and not so much what is the perception of an event. Uh, for many years at UEFA, I, I organized, um, was the project leader for the, the Champions League final and, um, and oversaw a lot of the sort of the preparations. And the debriefs were always very interesting after each final because I think when you go around the room, everybody had a bit of a perception of how the event went. And I still consider the Champions League final, um, in terms of degree of difficulty, one of the most difficult events to organize because it's a one-off event. It's a single day. You have one shot to do it. Um, a World Cup final. Once a year. Yeah, once, you once really a year. You do a rehearsal <laughs> in a different in a different city different working environment different working culture where if you compare that to a world cup final or a european championships final um where the fact that in that particular stadium there had been already a bunch of matches uh, taking place and that's just the culmination of an event so uh, so the debriefs of a Champions League final were always quite interesting because I would go very well prepared for them based on data, based on information that was real, not necessarily, not necessarily what is the perception of, uh, of how an event took place or not took place. So I think that's critical, um, and, and, and maybe that's sort of my American education uh, where that was instilled uh, from day one. Um, in my uh, 
business management degree where most of the decision making processes needs to be reliable and, and needs to mm -hmm. be uh, as objective as possible. Okay, cool. Uh, coming back a bit for for now, like today. Uh, so, twenty twenty one data is the new oil, and and we all know it. But um, you you mentioned you've been working at Wefa for I think it was for ten years, uh, if not more. But now you're working at the um, the FPF, so at the the Portuguese Football Federation. Uh, I don't want really to ask why why leaving Wefa, but the idea is more what why your new what your new job like director of team services mean can, can you walk us through a bit this journey or what you're doing today like your your job today um sure i mean at the end the director of team services for for the national teams we have 24 national teams uh at uh, portuguese fa and i think it's very easy to uh, forget um that most of the federation especially in europe you know we're not just talking about the the men's senior team which has obviously all of the exposure but most federations have uh, under 15 um, and above on um, both the men's the women's the, the futsal beach soccer so in total um, under uh, my responsibility are 24 national teams From under 15 to the to the senior teams on it's almost it's almost like 200 or 300 athletes, right? Absolutely, it's, it's almost it's yeah. it's more than that. It's uh, we talk about a pool of um, athletes that participate at least in one of our national team activities of almost a thousand per year. Um, as each okay. each uh, each national team has about 30. 20 to 30 athletes that get called up based if it's futsal it's a little bit less if it's football it's a little bit more um, but um, over over the pool of the year we, we talk about about a thousand athletes that come for a training camp or for the matches and so do, do you work like do you have a, a direct line with all of them or what, what's your role is that to orchestrate with each of the teams or Uh, with, I mean, which department or business units internally do you work most with, if, if I can turn it like that? So under my uh, under my responsibility, there are three main pillars. There is the all the team managers that uh, do all the preparation for the national teams. There are all the equipment managers that obviously prepare all the equipment. And there are all the video analysts that work with the coaching staff Um, in uh, sort of recording, uh, filing, uh, accumulating data that helps the coaching staff make. Uh, so you have some kind of sports performance related stuff. Absolutely. That means, so, okay. So under my team, there are 31 people uh, that work directly for, um, uh, for, for the national teams in that respect. And this excludes... The coaching staff so we have about 35 to 40 coaches um, specifically we have 38 coaches that work for the federation um, not all of them are full-time uh, some of them are paid on a per diem but uh, we could say that 38 coaches contribute to the national teams um, and their preparation for the results so basically my specific role is Um, and this is where the balance comes in and how you uh, and, and how you build your team 
is I don't go on the road with teams. I stay back. Uh, if, if I could do a comparison, I'm like the uh, air traffic control at an airport. So I do all the planning. I do all the budgeting. I, mm-hmm. uh, I make sure that I have enough staff. Um, I do all the, the staff planning of who travels with which team, uh, try to balance their schedules as much as possible. And at the end, um, if you could say, I, uh, I determine the service levels, I determine the strategical planning, uh, which then during the year, once all this is done, my main role is really to support, communicate, uh, act as the, um, as the link between the operational uh, staff and the, the board of the FPF. And, and mm-hmm. obviously, if you like football, if you like uh, sports, it's a, it's, it's a wonderful position to be in. Um, at UEFA, I was doing primarily events. So I was doing events management. And uh, now I could say it's more the sports management side of things. There's many, many uh, similarities that you, you can take in your, in your approach to the work uh, for both events management and sports management. But, you know, after 10 years working at UEFA at a certain point, it's still, uh, to me, uh, probably the best job I ever had um, because, you know, it was a privilege to be involved in Champions League finals and I had a bit of a taste of it when the Champions League returned back to Portugal in this summer to finish the, the season. So mm-hmm. as much as I try to escape it, it still comes and, and looks for me. And and uh, it was uh, it brought back such wonderful memories. But at certain points, it comes in your career where, um, you know, if yeah, you need to go back or what, what, what made you move from UEFA? If, if that was um, it's. At a certain point, you look at, uh, you know, I, I did a self-assessment and if, if I would have stayed at UEFA, I think I, I've, I foresaw the rest of my career for the next 20, 30 years that this is, this is what's going to be. I mean, it was, very, it was very secure in terms of, um, of job. Uh, it was uh, great people working. I was working with great people there. I was much more very, very settled in Switzerland, um, you know, with the young family. So all the ingredients were there, but at a certain point, you know, if you want to innovate, and if that's the sort of the, the bottom theme of this podcast, uh, sometimes you need to step out of your comfort zone and innovate yourself, which then in turn will allow you to innovate professionally. And I think that that was the main driving factor. It wasn't necessarily anything that I could say, um, you know, negatively about uh, what was going on in two ways. It was just a matter of after, after 10 years, sometimes you just need to change and you need to change to get yourself. Yeah, uh, you need to some, reinvent yourself as well. Yeah, absolutely. Get some good positive yeah, energy and get out of your comfort zone and, uh, and look at, um, look at a new, uh, a new opportunity. And, and let's be honest, I mean, coming to Portugal where the weather is what it is, the food is what it is, it's a, it's a culture I'm very <laughs> familiar with. It wasn't that difficult uh, a decision to make. So it was, uh, it was quite... It, it, it was makes things great. easier. It makes things easier. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that. 
on on your time at WEF, I mean, something like the WEF Innovation Hub as well. I mean, there's always uh, working closely on the event to say where you have both marketing and operations. You always have this kind of, you know, the, the marketing guys that that want to to implement or that working closely with the podcast partners, with the sponsors, uh, doing the different kind of activations, and then you have the operation sites that deliver the events. I mean, make that happen uh, with come ups like commercial operations. Uh, what what's your take on, on that in terms of aligning both marketing and operations within within such a big organization or within any kind of sports organization? I think that's uh, that to me is the secret sauce to a successful uh, uh, a successful project or a successful company because the marketing guys have a um, an intuition to innovate and to see what is the next big thing out there. What's uh, you know how can they work in cycles? So they they come up with a, with a plan, a promotional marketing strategy, whatnot, and um, and has fresh look, fresh feel, uh, whatever, you know, degree that the, their new plan has based on what the previous one was, there's this almost um, instinct that if you are somebody who is paid to come up with good ideas and to come up with uh, trying new things and not rely on the status quo, and then you have on the other side of the fence, the operation guys that prefer to keep things, you know, let's keep things as, uh, as we know it. So they like the security of, uh, of doing things uh, that they do know because they, they know by implementing it in the past, they will most likely succeed at implementing it in the future. So it, there's a natural divide at the start of any cycle or any project where, um, uh, marketing guys are trying to innovate and operational guys are trying to keep it uh, uh, where it's implementable. And As I think if marketing, yeah, if marketing and operations, uh, if the marketing staff is a bit uh, taking into account what is the operational process to implement their ideas and the operational staff can also um take marketing's uh, instinct to innovate and to also question how they do their processes. Um, I think that's, if, if that marriage happens, that is uh, absolutely uh, uh, a huge step to making any project successful. And if you look at probably, yeah. I wasn't around at the time, but the early 90s, you have to, you have to really consider how Champions League started um, with UEFA and team marketing back then, because I think that was uh, an initial uh, project, everything from the visuals to the concept uh, of somebody coming up with those ideas and then implementing them across all of Europe um, and then building it off year by year. I think the Champions League as a whole is, is a great example of how marketing and operations can work hand in hand. So. Um, yeah, if if uh, if I would say in a big organization, if the marketing guys, uh, if if they think of their ideas and how they're implementable and support the operationals guys and the operation guys uh, do the same with the marketing, I think that's uh, that's a huge um, a huge successful tandem that uh, that can innovate any company. 
Yeah, on, on that one, I mean, part of the innovation, I mean, it's usually people tend to see the startups and so the kind of glossy or outside things or so external where it's a lot about not only PR, but clearly you have a, a huge part on communications, but actually innovation is mostly around uh, fostering a culture of innovation. So it's also on investing in your staff to actually think differently or allowing them to have the processes to be able to execute also differently. So from what you've just said, I mean, for me, what's interesting is how can you put like uh, being managers or executives working in operations a bit more thinker like marketers? And how can you put also marketers to think a bit more like operations guys? Because obviously you can come with all the great concepts and everything, but if it does not translate into any reality or any kind of competition or match delivery, then it's it doesn't make any point. I mean, you're here to drive value for your organization. So how can you make like the switch for operation managers to think a bit more like marketing people and, and vice versa? It's it's not it's easier said than done, but I think it has to come it has to start with the leadership of the of, of the company because if at the end um, there is a space that allows a, a manager or allows a, a coordinator somebody or even a director I mean if if that leadership exists and that space allows that. Okay, guys, we don't need to do everything the same as we've done in the past. I mean, uh, and you give, and there is an, an, uh, a natural reaction to uh, reject. And, and I've, I've heard it in meetings before where, you know, marketing guys will come and present to, uh, to some operational staff and the operational staff will, will sort of shrug it, shrug it off and like, oh, here we go again. Mm -hmm. These guys are dreaming. <laughs> And uh, and marketing staff will sort of say the operational side. I mean, these guys they're they're, they're squared and they don't want to uh, they don't want to try something new. So I think if the leadership of any organization, the working culture, allows um, space for people to think, and I think thinking is uh, is almost a lost art because of the rhythm of of the workplace today is so fast and. And uh, the, the cycles are shortened and shortened that people at a certain point, I get the impression that, and I've seen this in, in at UEFA, at the Federation, it's uh, just, you know, just get it done. Just tick the box and move on. And there isn't critical thinking to see how uh, sometimes a self-assessment, are we doing it the right way? Are we doing it the wrong way? What can we do differently? What uh, What is out there? And I think that is where the leadership is such, and the management style is such important uh, uh, sort of skill to have to allow staff to to be critical thinkers, and and that's that's important. That's the only way I see it. That can can bring different departments closer together because they would not be afraid, and there wouldn't wouldn't be any self defense uh, uh, sort of mechanism when you approach. A kickoff meeting of um, of a new project. Mm. Yeah, clearly. I mean, I think that uh, from my end, uh, the buying from the top management, but also the implication uh, of of top management and executive is key to any kind of innovation or, or new ways of of thinking and having a new culture within an organization. Uh, moving a bit to the 
to the FPF, so to the Federation. I mean, Portuguese FA have been quite successful recently. Uh, I'm French. I can remember the Euro 20, uh, 2016. Uh, but in other, many other categories, I mean, futsal or, or even at youth level, you've been very, very successful. Um, I was thinking like, because now, you know, at UEFA you are a bit kind of, I would not say G-Zoom and far away, but still we're not as close as a club or federation can be. So for me, I was, uh, I wanted to ask you like, what, what does it, how does it feel like to be that close? And especially during the successes, uh, what, what was the feeling? What has been working? How, how did you leave it as a director of team services? That that must have been some kind of like a lot of, uh, experiences and, and emotions, I guess. It was uh, no doubt. I mean, I think uh, it's very easy and um, to to sort of come back and say, listen, the, I, I arrived in January 2016 in Lisbon, and uh, three months later, we we opened up our new training center um, that had. Uh, all, that we sort of centralized all our offices, our training center, um, uh, corporate space, whatnot. So we successfully opened that facility. Uh, first team that trained there as a training camp was the under-17s who went on to uh, win the European Championship that spring in May. The second team that trained there was our senior team, and they went to... Uh, the European Championships in France and beat uh, and beat France and won the first major tournament for for Portugal since uh, in, in their history. Uh, after that, I thought, wow, this there's something in the grass here that uh, clearly um, <laughs> uh, inspires the players to to have successful results. But I think overall, um, there there was. I, as a fan growing up, I've always been—I've uh, always supported the Portuguese national team, um, even though I lived in the United States. Uh, as a fan growing up, um, you know Portugal was always characterized as as a very good sporting uh, country, uh, football country, but it seemed to lack that uh, you know that last step. And you saw that when Euro two thousand four happened in Portugal, where we where the Portuguese team went to the final and we lost to Greece 1-0 one, one on, um, in the final. There was always, you know, always so close, always playing nice football, always uh, great talented players. I mean, the generation uh, that went to that Euro final was, was fantastic. But it never could... Sort of, their instinct. Yeah, it never could take that final step. And, and I think that changed... Uh, on many factors, it changed, and again, it goes it goes back to the leadership. I think the president of the federation, uh, uh, Fernando Gomes, he is um, clearly an innovator, clearly a great leader, a business person. So he's been able to uh, sort of create, have a, a strategical vision for what the federation should should be, um, and brought in. And this is, I think, the key. Uh, brought in the right people to implement that vision. So starting from our national team coach, uh, Fernando Sanch, uh, who is, um, you know, somebody who's been around the block many years, uh, has a wonderful leadership 
uh, ability that I've seen firsthand with the players. So all the players respect him. Um, uh, our CEO, all our directors, um, clearly people that are not content to come to the office every day and sit in the chair. And I think if you gain all this momentum on a sporting and on a, uh, on a administration and on a back office level, clearly um, the results will, will show up sooner than later. And that's what happened. I think the first term of the president from 2011 to 2015 was almost building the foundation. And since then, the results started to appear. Uh, from the beach soccer world championships to the futsal European championships to the football Euro, um, uh, uh, two or three different tournaments that we won on the youth level. So uh, all the results are appearing now. And off the pitch, you know, considering that we have a training facility and, um, and, and administration offices 10 minutes from the city center of Lisbon, uh, we have our own TV channel. We have our own university that plugs mm-hmm. into all the universities uh, around Portugal. Um, uh, How does it feel like to be so successful, Danny? I mean, for me, it's like the way I see it is like off pitch, you're great. On pitch, you're winning trophies. Uh, it seems like you have the player development pathway. You have a state-of-the-art campus for the players to train. I mean, is there? I mean, you mentioned it with. Uh, different clues, but is there a specific emulation, not just only from the top, or how, how does it all come together? What, what is the secret recipe for that? Uh, the secret recipe is, it's not so secret. It's simple, competent, hard work, uh, good communication, um, humility. Humility is a characteristic you don't see a lot uh, or, or being talked about because I don't think anybody walks around the office and gives each other a high fives every day that, uh, you know, how great uh, is the, are the results. Um, I think one week after we won the Euro in Paris, uh, we were in Moscow looking at, tr- at team base camps for, um, for the World Cup in Russia. Um, so it's uh, obviously, you know, we don't take it for granted and we don't uh, minimize the uh, the achievements that, uh, that the FPF has has had over the past five six years, but at the same time, once you've um, accomplished something, you and, and that's where again the mindset, the attitude um, of the leadership of the of the staff is so important because you don't settle for what you have done. You look forward to what what else you can do, and um, and today, what are we looking forward to? We're looking forward to building the third phase. So we just finished building a hotel on campus. Now we're going to build a, an arena, a one thousand person arena for all the futsal national teams to to train. Uh, we're going to build. Um, uh, a Portuguese football school uh, offices and auditorium. So to have a, an actual academic uh, campus on site. Um, and, uh, and in the you meantime... keep pushing the boundaries. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's always, um, you know, 
football, especially in Portugal, has such a central importance on the social fabric of this country that at the end we try to lead by example of what can be done. Granted, um, financially we are very comfortable and secure because sporting the, the sporting results, the relationship with UEFA um, and FIFA and all of the possibilities that have opened up, but we also need to, to be competent on how to manage that. And I think we've managed it uh, quite uh, reasonably, uh, very down to earth and everything uh, done based on what is... Um, what are facts? What is data? What is the information? What do people need? Now, we have our TV channel. It's not, it's not boosting the ratings. It's not uh, taking over. It's not the number one viewed TV channel in Portugal. But that was not the point. The point was to promote football that is being forgotten. So, uh, so this weekend, we showed nine hours straight of women's football matches, including our own national team. We bought the rights for the she believes cup in um, in the United States, uh, so having two other additional matches. And if if you think about it, on that, yep. I, I just want to jump on this because I mean you're talking about visibility and you're talking so I mean that's the different objectives we have just like web with participation, but in terms of giving access or visibility, I mean with the players with their role that have changed over years and now today everybody. I mean, we've seen Marcus Rashford being on the cover of the time for the first time. Uh, uh, we've seen them during the pandemic or they have, now they are their own media to a certain extent. They, they can move, they can give you visibility or access. And how do you use them or how have you seen that changed? And as director of services, how do you, how do you work with the players closely in terms of either helping them to get more visibility or actually cast lights on different uh, topics that are of key importance to you, to the Federation? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the athletes that are on Marcus Rashford's level are very few. Those are the elite athletes that will naturally have a platform uh, simply by their own social media channels or their own initiative, but they're the, the vast majority of athletes do not have that platform uh, or that reach to make a difference. So uh, what does our, our TV channel invest a lot in is to tell the stories behind a lot of these athletes that are not familiar to the general public. And um, I think storytelling is always a very easy um, way to connect with people and where, where do we hope to see the benefits of sort of what we do with the TV channel is somewhere within 10, 15 years uh, in an interview with an athlete, uh, if it's a women's uh, national team player, or if it's a futsal uh, national team player, and we ask them, how did you get started? Um, what, what provoked you to, uh, to really invest and dedicate yourself and they say listen I was watching the the FPF TV channel 10 years ago and I and I didn't think it was possible I knew you know the Cristiano Ronaldo's and the Marcus Rashfords they're out of reach but I saw the story of a second division club and I thought man uh, I see how they mean you, you want to be an inspiration you want to be an inspiration for the new new generation actually 
I think that's always uh, something that you can set a good example because uh, uh, in terms of what is being promoted today, I mean, Marcus, Marcus Rashford, I'm glad you brought him up because he's one of my favorite athletes, not so much for what he does on the pitch, but what he does off the pitch. And, and you just want to root for him based on, mm. on the human's uh, contribution he's done um, in, in the UK for, uh, for society. And you want to root for him. So if you want to root for him, that means you want to, you want him to be successful. You want to support him. And that, and there's many athletes with stories similar to that. And, uh, you know, the, what Cristiano, for example, uh, does for, for society is also some of the times it gets promoted. Some of the times he doesn't promote it, but he contributes a lot as well to what, um, to improve people's lives. And, and I think when, when, when the, public makes a connection with the athlete like that you you just want to support him and help him and in retrospect as well you support the team that he plays for so so that's uh, that's the overall let's say goal mm. but for me like i mean we all want even through wfa tv or different sports organizations they want to inspire the new generation but it's always hard for sports organizations to actually find the right uh, tone of voice. Uh, I mean, you need to talk to a generation for which you don't necessarily have the same codes, the same habits, or, or the same ways of talking. So, even like I think you, you can be helped by different companies that help you actually engage better with this kind of new generation rather than just purely broadcasting matches. But I've always thought, like, what, what's your take on using the players themselves to actually? tell the story, but do, do you plan to have around your uh, OTT platform, your, your content in terms of, do you have any editorial line around that? Do you plan to use more of the athletes also as part of the training to, to showcase some behind the scenes or to have more of a direct link as well? Because new generations, they want to, to be engaged as well. So they, they want to identify themselves. So I was just thinking while you were talking, like, What's the strategy behind? Because I guess there is more than purely broadcasting nine hours straight. It's also, uh, I don't know if you have a studios or some kind of a content where you have an editorial line to say uh, that can help you inspire the new generation. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's where the, um, the relationship with the athletes is so very important because um, you're absolutely right in the sense that uh, sports organizations uh, sometimes um, are not exactly best positioned to reach out to different, uh, let's say, different fans and different timings and different cultures and different uh, stages of the, of the evolution of their, uh, their ability to be a fan. So what is the most important thing is to have diversity of voices because uh, you know the portuguese national team cannot just have cristiano ronaldo as their as their voice it's it's too single dimensional um, as great an athlete and as great a person as he is he has to be one of several voices to reach out to different uh, uh, to different target groups and and once you have an idea what is the value of 
uh, an athlete and what do they bring to the table and how do they communicate the message, then you really need to put sort of a, let's say, a storyboard together to, to try to reach out and, and make that connection with different target groups out there. Uh, so, uh, you know, maybe the an athlete that we have on our women's team, uh, she plays maybe half the games as a starter or half the games as a, as a backup, but she has an extraordinary personality, is a great communicator. Uh, we're not adverse to using her, even though uh, on the pitch she might not be the star athlete of that team, but she has that personality to really connect with people. And that sometimes goes a very long way uh, to, uh, to make up for, um, uh, make, make a group of voices that can reach out to different target groups. And, and that's, and that's what you got about the players. What has been the most like inclined or the most willing to actually take part with the, with the Federation in terms of helping you in your advocacy or what, what kind of player is it more the, uh, I don't like to say that, but is it more the tier two, tier three competitions? Like, is it more the the beach uh, beach soccer or the futsal, or is it more, or is it all the teams? Actually, you don't see any kind of differences because Cristiano or Nani or, or whatever top players are, are as willing as an under seventeen or an under nineteen boys or girls to actually come up and and deliver a message. Or what what's your take on this? Have you seen differences or, or not really? Um, as, as we are owning the, the TV channel and it's a platform that we use to promote positively the game, I think we've had a great reception from the athletes to always participate. Um, I think last year uh, on Cristiano's birthday, he allowed us to phone in to his, uh, his birthday get-together and, and allowed the studio hosts to sing him happy birthday, for example. So he was a willing participant uh, in that particular show. Other athletes from futsal to women's to the coaching staff and, and all teams, um, I think with the platform that they're able to express themselves and sh sort of showcase a little bit what is their, uh, what is their day to day? What is their job? What are their thoughts? It, it gives them a, a platform that allows them to transmit uh, positive messages without necessarily being um, questioned of why did you play that player instead of that player, which is what uh, is also important to to question. But that's uh, the rest of the media will will handle that part of it. So I think the overall reaction of players' willingness to participate has been very positive. Um, um, and you don't need a lot of resources. We use, for example. Uh, WhatsApp uh, just to uh, reach out to a coach uh, where we don't have any staff to accompany. We don't have a media officer. Uh, we just get him on the phone with the team manager, put on a couple of headsets like what we're doing right now and ask him a few questions straight from the pitch. So that gives the audience uh, live content based on, uh, based on what, is, uh, what is happening on the matches. And I think that's the investment that uh, the Federation has undertaken, at least with a communication platform that is necessary to control, uh, not control, but to showcase the messages that we think should be showcased. 
Danny, you remind me that you you owe me like one tape once you would have the behind the scenes in a in a kind of a Netflix uh, format type where we'll have uh, the life of Danny at the uh, FPF. Uh, you, you need to send me the link or the tape for those who are old school like me to to still view it. <laughs> I'm not sure how successful that'd be because 99 of it is boring. That one percent though is quite it's quite fun and exciting. So. Uh... Uh, one of these days, I'm going to write a book on uh, all the all the stories I have within the football, my football experiences. Uh, but yeah, uh, that's actually yeah. that's actually something I, I will keep because I, we're, we're about to wrap up. But I I wanted you on the podcast because you have so many stories. Uh, maybe at the end I will leave you like because otherwise we'll have to do three or four podcasts only on the stories you have. But um, actually, if I've invited you, it's also because, and you've touched upon it, I think, a bit earlier, uh, you, you're not directly innovating by working around like leading technology or startups or these kind of things, but you've been an innovator your whole life, and I've seen it at UEFA, and the thing that I love the most is that you've even mentioned that after 10 years, you kind of disrupt yourself. You decided to make a move to reinvent yourself, to be your own innovator, to to put yourself in a uncomfortable situation or not within your comfort zone to make sure you can continue to grow, continue to to keep going and to, to open yourself and to be an innovator to a certain extent, which I love. And for me, it's to the people that are listening to us, what, what would be the advices or how can you become your own innovator or how can you make sure you keep questioning things or how can you be... I mean, what have you learned along the way to make sure that you, Danny, has been continuously innovating without having someone to tell you that you need to be innovative? But like, you, you've been your own innovator your whole life. So do you have any tips for that? Um, it depends a lot what, who you are as a person. I mean, it, it's very natural for me, not necessarily to question everything that's been done or what's happening around it's i have a, a basic need to understand the process from start to finish and for me to understand the process if if i take organizing a champions league final uh, my first ever champions league final it was uh, i arrived at uefa in january and the match was in uh, is in may in paris uh, barcelona versus arsenal in 2006 I, I had to jump in right away, but at the same time, I didn't, um, I, I just didn't take what was already done and just go with it. No, I had to understand how the process, uh, what's the overall objective for everybody, for the teams, for the referees, for the sponsors, for the broadcasters, for the, uh, for the staff itself, because at the end of the day, we also have to take care of uh, the staff that's working on the project. Um, and, and that's very important for me in terms of what, um, uh, what, uh, how I could be successful at my job. So what does that naturally entail is by doing that mental process of understanding how things are, you end up uh, sort of subtly changing or, or if you want to call it innovating, but you end up and you you change because you want to improve on what was being done or, or, or how it's being done. Um, and you end up subtly changing without it feeling like it was a revolution. And 
And if I give you another example, uh, when I inherited, when I moved to Portugal, um, our national team department, out of the 31 staff, 19 of them have been at the Federation for more than 15 years. So mm. where is the uncomfort? You know, I'm entering a new organization. Some people knew me um, from my wife today. Some people never worked with me. Some people never heard of me. And some people uh, had a great relationship with myself. But, you know, 19 people that have been in an organization for more than 15 years, it's going to be very difficult to get them to innovate and get them to do things in a different way. So if I look at it now, uh, four or five years later, I'm, I'm very proud that I wouldn't say I, I was able to touch everybody, quite, but I would have to say that, you know, now I have the team working in the image that I wanted to in a more cohesiveness, a more consistent uh, service level that they provide the coaches, that they provide the players. And I didn't innovate by... Uh, sort of showing up one day and revolutionizing the way we work. There was subtle changes of documenting everything that we do. And, and, I, use, and I use a very s simple recipe. It's what do we have to do, who do we have that can do it, and how much money can we spend? And if I just answer those three questions, 95% of my job is done. And then investing in the people that I work with to to sort of aligning everything. And I think that's, if, if you look at, you know, innovation um, is not necessarily just doing, uh, you know, buying a new uh, IT tool and innovating. That's also part of it. But I think innovating in people is simply uh, showing them, leading by example of how uh, working together can improve their sort of efficiency in their work environment. So that's that would be, I guess, advice or uh, this more of a shared experience. That's, a, that's how I would um, uh, sort of share my experience by uh, telling people to, you know, not necessarily question everything that you do, but look at it from nuts and bolts, A to Z. How do you uh, do the job that you do and, and what is lacking, what is missing, what can be better better done, and then take it from there. Um, and you'll see that if you look back at on a big picture, two, three years, the innovation was there. And, um, and I have two examples of that on Champions League and at the Federation at the National Team Services side, because uh, after all these years, I still saw uh, when UEFA came over this summer for the, for the Champions League in Portugal that a lot of the processes that I put in place at the time are still being used. So that's, uh, that is something that, uh, you know, you can sort of, uh, I can look back and, and be proud of. Yeah, honestly, uh, fully to 100% aligned, love it. You've just delivered a bit. The background, uh, the backdrop to, to innovation, uh, with the resources, the, the people you have, the different partners and how you can do it while, while still questioning or, or looking at doing things differently. So truly love it. I wish I could, I could end the podcast uh, right now on, on these words of wisdom. Uh, one, one final question for me, Danny, uh, which is a bit more to get, to get your views on, on the ecosystem or on the industry today. But what, which sports organizations do you see today? Uh, to be one of the most innovative or 
or the one delivering world-class events uh, from your own perspective? Uh, yeah, if you had to name one today, what, which one would that be? Um, I have to say, based on uh, internal workings and, and working closely with, um, with the clubs that I've worked with, I have to say Real Madrid and Bayern Munich are two of the leading clubs on uh, on innovation, um, especially off the pitch. In 2002, when I was still in New York, um, I remember taking a meeting. I was very young in my career, but I accompanied my boss at the time, uh, where we took a meeting with a Spanish company that was doing uh, LED um, signboards, uh, so the publicity mm -hmm. boards around the pitch. And Real Madrid were the first club to, uh, uh, to sort of come up with a system. And I know what they do with, with their infrastructure in, uh, in the stadium. And, we'll, and, and, you know, one of my first visits will be to go to the, to the remodeled Bernabeu Stadium because they're very, very uh, ahead of their time in terms of uh, offering um, uh, experiences for, uh, for all the target uh, groups with the degree of difficulty in rebuilding in a stadium, not from scratch, but in the middle of, of the city center. So I've always had a tremendous amount of respect for Real uh, Madrid and Bayern Munich and Bayern Munich on a whole different level as well in terms of, um, of what, uh, what they do with, with their sponsors, what they do uh, as a board, uh, how they treat their ex-players, um, uh, what they do it's, it's from top to bottom the most complete organization I've ever worked with no doubt um, and then as a fan which I don't know how the inner workings are uh, <laughs> but I, I've, always, I've always loved what the IOC and the complexity of their organization because doing a winter and a summer Olympics on many different venues across, across the world um, and the amount Amounts of athletes that are involved, amounts of groups. I mean, that's also quite impressive. But I've never worked with them. I've never been into one of the Olympics. But that's something that I think is also worth uh, worth getting to know a little bit how they work because they're, they're fascinating as well. Cool. Well, thank you, Danny. Uh, thank you for, for the replies and, and sharing your, your experience with us today. Uh, really a pleasure. I encourage everybody uh, to, to go and maybe like uh, to, to send a message to Danny if you want to hear crazy or, or cool stories around sports organizations, events. Uh, he has plenty of stories around those. We, we could not touch them today, but I hope like the words of wisdom that he shared today with us uh, Will help you at all. Uh, thank you for the time, Danny. Again, uh, really enjoyed it and really appreciate it. No, I, I thank you. It's always um, you know as much as uh, as it's wonderful to share our experiences. It's also good if uh, if somebody uh, um, takes advantage of this podcast and and can do something a little bit different in their day to day. So it's a real pleasure, and I and I'm really honored for the invitation. And, um, you know, keep up the good work, uh, uh, Jean. And uh, next time you want, I could, I could share some stories. There's going to be two versions. There's going to be the real version. There's going to be the filtered version because I cannot get anybody in trouble. Okay. <laughs> That's cool. We'll make that off the record. Uh, th thanks again for the time and have a, have a nice day all.
Thanks. Thank, thanks, JB. Le corner.